first reading comes from Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our second reading tonight is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. <coughs> Going through to chapter 5, verse 13. 1 Corinthians, chapter 4. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men contemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth the refuse of the world. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. 
He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love with a gentle spirit? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. In the city of Corinth, there was a statue on a plinth of a dog. And it was erected there to mark uh, the, 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 the burial place, or to, to acknowledge that in the city was buried the philosopher Diogenes. And uh, he founded the Cynic school of philosophy, and, and the word cynic comes from the Greek word for dog. And there are many legends about Diogenes, many uh, deeds attributed to him, many words that people say that he said. Uh, But he is said to have lavishly praised the virtues of dogs. Because they eat anything, they're not fussed about where they sleep, they perform natural bodily functions in public without being bothered about it, they know instinctively whether you are friend or foe, and all of that, he said, made a dog superior to a human being. He was someone who lived consciously rejecting 
what other people expected was the right behaviour in society. So he would eat in the streets. He would masturbate in the marketplace. He would urinate on anyone who insulted him. He defecated in the theatre. He pointed at people with his middle finger. His attitude was, whatever you do in the privacy of your home, and it's okay for you to do in the privacy of your home, there is nothing wrong with doing that in public. That was just his expression of integrity. What I am happy to do in private, everybody else should cope with, if I do in public. It's about being free from society's expectations and norms. That was how he saw integrity. The only sin is ignorance, the only virtue is wisdom. And the wise man will learn how to walk amongst other people in complete liberty without being tied down in any way. The body is a slave. It's a slave to fever, gout, dysentery and all sorts of diseases and it's really nothing more than lifeless earth and clay. The secret of living free then is to be completely indifferent to your body, to its needs, its feelings and what you do with it. He's credited with teaching the Stoics how to live, saying, I alone am rich, I alone reign as king in the world. There are some people that think that that Diogenes was a bit of a hero in Corinth, and some of his thinking seems to have affected some of the people in church and and how they behaved. His philosophy philosophy seems to have been married a little bit with, with their Christian world view. Certainly this man in Corinth who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother was showing complete indifference to social convention. He was doing something which was taboo and he didn't seem to care about it at all. Now, having a sexual relationship with your stepmother isn't something that that a lot of people do normally. But this was a society where girls married young. They frequently died in childbirth. It wasn't unusual for a man to marry again. And in such circumstances, there often wasn't much of an age gap, really, between the man's son and his new wife. Uh, You know, they'd be very close in age. And so it was easy, I guess, for such a sexual attraction to develop. And, and, but this thing was, was kind of, it was perceived as incest. This was not something that you did at all. It was specifically outlawed in the Old Testament law, and the Greeks wanted no part of it whatsoever. But in the church in Corinth, this was going on. And what Paul couldn't get his head round was that rather being appalled by it, or dismayed by it, or taking some action against this bloke, they were proud. That's what he couldn't understand. They, 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 they thought it was in some way a good thing. As if such behaviour were a demonstration of the freedom that they had in Christ. It was a sign of their authority in Christ. That they could just shrug off all society's expectations and do this thing. The phrase, everything is lawful for me, was probably a slogan that was banded around in Corinth based in part on Paul's teaching that the Christians didn't need to obey the Jewish law. You didn't need to keep the food laws. You didn't need to be circumcised. Paul argued that such considerations didn't apply to Gentile Christians who were free to make up their own minds what was right or wrong for them and a whole stack of issues. 
The problem was that the Corinthians had made up their own minds about this one particular issue and decided it was okay, and Paul wasn't prepared to go that far. He wasn't prepared to go down that road with them. Paul was keen on the idea that being in Christ set you free, set you free from sin, set you free from the law, set you free from condemnation. He speaks in Romans about the glorious liberty of the children of God reigning in life through Christ. Christ has brought freedom from death and sin and fear and guilt and condemnation and shame. The much sought after virtuous self-mastery was available to people in the kingdom of God. But the Corinthians just seem to have pushed that too far. All social constraints are gone. Freedom from sin and guilt and condemnation meant that they could live how they pleased without fear of repercussions. They didn't need to hunger and thirst after righteousness because they were righteous already. They were completely sated and satisfied. They were reigning like kings in their own moral universe and their superior wisdom and knowledge enabled them to dismiss their critics as being stupid and ignorant. So they were tempted to see this man's sexual relationship with his stepmother as evidence of the radical liberty they had in Christ to live a life free from sin. The view that, in effect, you can't do anything wrong. All those petty human laws that regulate human conduct, they were behind them now. And some people think they kind of fused together a a pseudo cynic philosophy, saying, I have the authority to do what I like, I can disregard human convention and laws, with a misrepresentation of Paul's teaching that in Christ we are set free from the law. And so they came to an outlook that says, I am free to do what I like, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone. People say that kind of thing today quite a bit. It's a tricky one, this. I wasn't alive in the 50s. And there are differing views of what life in Britain was like before the arrival of the pill set people free to enjoy the sexual revolution in the 60s. Those of you around in the 50s, you'll be able to put me right on this. There are those who miss the social expectation that the only right place for sexual intercourse was within marriage. And there was a huge social stigma attached to having a child outside of marriage. Others look back and deplore the hypocrisy of a society that pretended that sex outside marriage didn't happen, kept up the pretense by checking into seaside hotels as Mr and Mrs Smith and resorting to backstreet abortions when things went wrong. And they would say that as long as a couple were married, society was satisfied with the outward appearance of respectability and whatever went on behind the closed doors of that home was nobody's business and nobody cared. So long as, outwardly, everything was as it should be. To some extent then, they would say that the respectability of 1950s Britain was an illusion that was shattered by the 1960s. Some would say that shattering was a bad thing. Others would say it wasn't all bad. Yet without the constraints of society governing people's sexual behaviour, subsequent generations have found it increasingly difficult to maintain stable, committed, loving relationships. Too many children grow up without ever having seen what that would look like in practice and they have no role model to follow. So compared to the 50s, we have huge freedom from repression. But are we better 
for being free. John McMurray said that anything is free when it spontaneously expresses its own nature to the full in activity. Let me say that again. Anything is free when it spontaneously expresses its own nature to the full in activity. The problem is, when I express my own nature to the full and live it out in practice, what comes out? What do I end up doing? Imagine a society society where everyone simply did whatever took their fancy, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you can read about such a society in the book of Judges if you have a mind to. But it's no society at all, really. It is nothing but anarchy. So society needs rules to hold human nature in check. But rules alone are ineffective. Last night we watched the new film Lawless about the Bonduant brothers in, in, in Prohibition America who were engaged in, in manufacturing and, and, and running moonshine liquor and about how the, the attempt to forbid the selling of alcohol didn't work because people weren't prepared to keep the law and just drove it underground and led to all kinds of violence In actual fact, the law was repealed later on out of a recognition that it wasn't working because the law, if people weren't willing to keep it, was ineffective couldn't address the issue of human nature. Social conventions are the same. Society needs laws and and, and laws and rules become more enforceable when they're backed up by social expectations, the knowledge that if you don't toe the line, there are going to be consequences. Yet social pressures do nothing to alter the root cause of the problem, which is human nature. Rules and regulations can hold human nature in check to some extent. But the sinful condition of human nature will always find a way round the rules, a way of rebelling against social expectation. And the problem is as well, of course, that the sinfulness of human nature can be as much apparent in the attitudes of society as it is in the behaviour of the individual. So society's expectations of how people should behave can be driven by vested interests, can be governed by fear, can mask prejudice so that they themselves become toxic and oppressive. The issue is the kind of people that we are on the inside. And that could be clamped down upon, that can be stifled by social expectations and laws, but unless there is a change inside, laws and social expectations aren't going to solve anything. And when those are are swept away and we're free to do what we like, if we're the same people inside then the result is still going to be destructive. I have to say that I wonder whether Paul is being, I don't know, oppressive when it comes to dealing with this bloke having a relationship with his father's wife. There is no attitude that says, well, they're consenting adults, as long as they're behind closed doors, it doesn't matter. There is none of that here. He clearly identifies it as incest and wants nothing to do with it and demands a robust response on the part of the church. They are all to assemble together. Paul says, I will be with you in spirit. You are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved on the day of Christ. That is powerful, strong, hard language. And people debate to some extent exactly what he meant by it. The language about the flesh being destroyed and the spirit being saved 
brings to mind all sorts of disturbing inquis- uh, memories of the Inquisition and, and witch trials and burning at the stake and, and what you will. And to some extent, all those practices drew some legitimacy from what Paul said here. The NIV helps a bit by talking about the, the sinful nature rather than the flesh. The sinful nature will be destroyed and the spirit saved on the day of Christ Jesus. And probably Paul meant simply expelling the man from the community, kicking him out, because outside the boundary of the church could be deemed to be Satan's realm. And the destruction of the flesh may have been the idea of the man falling sick, or or maybe even dying because he'd handed over to Satan. But quite possibly it does mean the destruction of the sinful nature. The act of expelling him might bring him to his senses, cause him to eradicate from within himself by the spirit the impulses that lead to such behaviour so that ultimately his spirit and maybe the Holy Spirit within the church community could be preserved. It's drastic language, and it's not... People debate whether it's altogether in character for Paul or not, because elsewhere he's quite happy with the idea that people should be guided by their consciences. We are not to pass judgment on each other. But this was clearly one occasion when he felt church discipline was essential. Some people are unhappy with the idea of church discipline, it kind of becomes quite repressive. You feel as if there's one person there who's crossed a line and the rest of the church can assume the moral high ground and take action against that one person. And we lose sight of the reality that we are all sinners in the sight of God. We are all in the same boat. And so people wonder why Paul is so heavy-handed here. Is this an indication of his own sexual repression? Is it just that incense is, incest is beyond the pale? Is the man perhaps a leader in the church, a person of high standing in society who's been abusing his position and needs to be brought down to earth? Or was the theology of the church itself here at fault? Was the church as a whole so taken up with the idea that they'd been raised with Christ and they were free from sin and guilt and shame, that nothing could touch them, they could do what they like, anything goes? The way in which they were proud of this man's behaviour suggests that the church was as much at fault as the man himself. And that may have been why Paul came down so heavy on them. But Paul is anxious to make the point that freedom from the law, freedom from sin, does not mean I can do as I please. That's not what it's about. That's not how it works. We are released from sin and guilt and the law and condemnation in the kingdom of God and that means accepting God's sovereignty in our lives. We reign under him. We're not free to live our own independent lives without taking into account his will. We are set free to live for him, not to do whatever we want. We are set free to to live according to his will, not according to our likes or dislikes. Having Jesus as saviour, forgiving all your sin, goes hand in hand with having him as Lord, releasing you from sinful patterns of behaviour. And Jesus certainly sets us free. But if we use that freedom to indulge sinful desires, we end up simply being enslaved to them again. We are not free to be completely independent. We are called to serve each other within the church. One of the reasons why Paul kind of commands the whole church to come together to deal with this man is to recognise that he is accountable to the church as a whole. And we are all accountable to each other as members of the body of Christ. That's part of what we express here as we share bread and wine together. It's a covenant meal. We are bound in fellowship together to Christ. 
and we are called to walk together and watch over each other and to hold each other accountable in terms of our behaviour to one another. We are not just a collection of 70, 80 individuals. We are members together of the one body. And we're all connected to each other. None of us is independent. One of the lies we tell ourselves when we're doing something wrong is, oh, it doesn't affect anybody else. But it does. All the time. The people we hurt. The people we betray. The people we let down. The pain or the heartache that we cause them because they care about us. The way in which our attitude towards them changes because we know that we've done them wrong in some kind of way and so we can't quite look them in the eye as we used to. Sin always has consequences, not just for the perpetrator, but for everybody around that person as well. There is always a knock-on effect. We never sin in a vacuum. That's why Paul says it's a little bit like leaven corrupting the rest of a batch of dough. In the ancient world, as you bake bread week by week, you'd always keep back a little bit of dough from the previous week to put it in a fresh batch so that that would cause the fresh batch of dough to to rise as it was heated. And Paul says it's like that with someone's sin. One person's sin affects everybody else. It's not sealed in a sin-tight container. It spreads. Once a year, the Jews observed the combined feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Before the Passover lamb was sacrificed, there was a ritual. All the leaven, all the yeast was removed from every house. And the house was kept free from leaven for the following week. That was partly for hygienic reasons. So that you weren't perpetuating the same kind of dirt and disease for and ever and ever by reusing the same stuff over and over again. But the ritual of cleansing the house from leaven represented cleansing the household from sin. And going through the house, kind of making sure that there was no leaven left, represented the way in which you went through your life at that point in time, asking God to remove everything that was sinful from you. And Paul, looking back on Jesus' death, because Jesus' death died at Passover, he talks about Christ being our Passover lamb, sacrificed for us. And says we should keep the feast, not with the old leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ is the one who works to purify our hearts from the inside, to change the people that we are inside. So that when we are set free, it is his goodness within us that finds expression, rather than our own waywardness or our own sinfulness. And we can live in openness together in a church community, submitting to each other's expectations, because these aren't oppressive, these aren't aren't pushing us down, denying us our freedom, because we are concerned to build each other up and keep each other within the fellowship of Christ. So belonging to a church community enhances our freedom, rather than stifling it. George Appleton rightly said, freedom in Christ is not freedom to do what I like, but freedom to be what I'm meant to be. It is freedom from all the chains which hold me back from being myself. It is freedom from all imposed limitations and external pressures. It is to share in Christ's freedom to do God's will and then to help others find a similar freedom. It is a freedom that is shared. And it's a gift of freedom we celebrate at the Lord's table. Here, Jesus accepts and welcomes us.
Here, Jesus forgives and sets us free. Here, he takes what is sinful from us and puts it to death. Cleanses out the old leaven. Cleanses out the rubbish. Cleanses out the attitudes. So that when we are set free, it is his spirit who guides and governs our actions, our thoughts and our behaviour. Because we recognise him here as our saviour and here as our Lord as well. And here we commit ourselves afresh to him and to each other. To walk together. To watch over each other. To serve each other as the community of those who have been set free to live together under the Lordship of Christ.